Hey guys, Lindy Pearson here. My husband and I work with a great firm called Cressa, also our podcast sponsor. We're a commercial real estate firm, but unlike most firms in our industry, we only work for the tenants. We help owners and C-level executives make better real estate facility decisions while saving them money in the process. So welcome to Level Up, guys, where we feature entrepreneurs, leaders, and other professionals who have demonstrated agency and innovation in their personal and professional lives. Today's guest, one of my fave business attorneys, who focuses on handcrafted legal solutions, kind of like a farm to courtroom table kind of thing, specializing in commercial contract disputes, shareholder partnership owner disputes, business and investment frauds, and labor and employment litigation. His client industries include hospitality, green renewable energy, conscious capital companies, social entrepreneurship, real estate, creative agencies, design firms, retail, finance, healthcare, technology startups, even yoga studios. He does it all, guys. I present to you today one of my really good friends, Mr. Lane Mervis. Welcome to Level Up. Level Up, here we are. Mm-hmm. Welcome. Thank you, Lindy. Thanks so much for having me on. I'm an avid listener. And, you know, I, I have a story to start us out because I remember the first time that we met. Yeah. And it was at a, a networking event for the Exchange LA Professionals Group. And it was in the Valley. And I can remember it actually. Encino. That's right. That's uh-huh. right. Round table and, in Encino. I, I remember going up the elevator. I remember going into the room. And it was one of my early experiences with some of these professional networking groups. And I remember you speaking about what you did as a, a tenant side rep. You left an impression. Oh, see, I like it. I like it. You left an impression as well. I think, uh, I think you were the only person in that room that kind of had the same kind of background as me before I even knew it. Some of the, some of the holistic ways about your answers was more like a people person and being on the tenant side. I, I kind of, kind of vibed with that. So you guys represent uh, tenants, obviously, companies coming in, but ultimately it's people. Yep. Yep. It's the business owners. It's the people making the decisions. It's the people who are in charge of the office, the people who are in charge of the growth, the people who have the employees' well-beings and, and, and safety. And for my, my practice, I represent companies, investors, and the size that we represent, though, you know, when I started practicing law years ago, and I'm sure we'll get into this, worked on some very big deals and represented hedge funds, and there were billion-dollar deals, very exciting. And the clients I tend to represent now, while the issues are just as important, it's usually not billion-dollar deals, usually not Fortune 500 companies. And so those are, and maybe it's like you, or maybe you represent, you know, national or coast-to-coast kind of companies, but it really does make a difference. These are owners who have a couple of storefront or a couple of restaurants and it really is the people behind it. It's not like a faceless, uh, a faceless company where, you know, there's, there's no face to it. There's no, no contact there. Yeah. Did you, did you know you wanted to be in this kind of law? Cause I know your background kind of, you came from more of the academics line, you know, how, how did you, how did you fall into this kind of role more of, like the mindset of supporting people in the holistic way as opposed to, you know, some lawyers do it a little more abrasive. Yeah, look, most lawyers come in and they want to do, they want to be law and order. And that's actually what I thought. And I even interned while in law school. 
<laughs> or a criminal defense attorney. I really did. And I thought that would be pretty neat. And I landed up taking some courses with my, uh, with a professor I really connected with in bankruptcy. I know who grows up thinking, you know what I want to do? I want to be a corporate restructuring bankruptcy lawyer. <laughs> and we had a connection. I landed up going to work for, this was at UCLA law. My professor was a professor and also a partner in a law practice here in LA. And I landed up going to work straight for them. It was very academic work, very interesting, very smart lawyers and great, taught me great uh, practices. And that really is so important. I always say that for young lawyers, your first couple of years out, uh, you really want to get, really want to nail that down. Right. And the, the work was very high level, but now I work in a much more well-rounded practice where we represent clients from the day they walk in with some sort of challenge or problem all the way through filing a case. I mean, we're litigators. Uh, my firm is Ennett PC, and it's a small group of us. It's five of us, and mm -hmm. we handle everything for the clients. Usually it's business disputes and frauds and disputes over real estate, all sorts of things. Right. And uh, we handle from really from, from start to finish through appealing a case, anything you can imagine. So uh, it has changed. I mean, I love that work that I did when I started out. Mm -hmm. And now I feel like I, I handle so much more for the clients. The big change I had, and I think you connect with this as well, uh, was a change I had. Well, let's be really authentic. When I came out of law school, I worked for that firm, some other firms, and I, I worked and got fired from some of the most prestigious law firms in LA. And over the course uh -oh. of several uh -oh. years, <laughs> I, I just could not really find a connection, a place where I wanted to be for more than a few years. Yeah. And uh, ultimately, what that led, what that led to was leaving my law career, I took a break and I studied a master's program mid-career in spiritual psychology. Not something I ever expected. And that program had me really rethink what I was doing and ultimately led to where I am now. At, at the conclusion of that program, I landed up working, going to work with uh, my present employer, this boutique firm. And I've been there, gosh, I think seven years, longer than I ever was with, an, with a firm before that. And we're a great group. We support each other. We care about our clients. And it's approaching work from a completely different place than I ever did before. Do you still have connections or the relationships from back in the day when maybe, you know, you were just kind of starting out or any sort of anything that you guys kind of have a little bromance still with? Absolutely. And I still connect with them. Some of my old well, I mean, first of all, I had some of the best bosses around and some of the toughest. I mean, my first boss and mentor used to put so much, it wasn't a red pen, it was a purple pen. And mm -hmm. I would turn in a paper and there was so much purple pen on it and then on the back of it. Wait. And I would say you, you could have written it yourself so much faster. But again, that's, <laughs> that's about that partner. She wanted to take the time to invest, to teach me yeah. how to do it right. Even if I was writing a one paragraph letter and her notes were three pages long to get me to write that one paragraph letter the way it should be. And you know, they were perfectionists, but perfectionists are getting a good name these days. I, I remember early on, I had one typo in a court filing. Uh oh. You know, every, every day we, we file pleadings 
about papers, briefs. And there was a typo. And my boss came to me and said, you've got to file an errata. Errata is, is a Latin word. It means I messed up. Yeah. You file a one-page paper. And by the way, this gets electronically filed. It goes out to all the big law firms. They all get it. Amazing, and, amazing. Hey, guess says, what? Uh, I screwed up. Hey, just announced That's right. And it says, hey, this brief that we filed yesterday, on page seven, line six, it said there, T-H-E-R-E, but we messed up. It, should, it was a typo, and it should be T-H-E-I-R. And I said, no one's ever going to notice this, and no one really cares. But my boss said, nothing leaves this office. That's not right. And, and I remember he said, I, I don't care if you have to take a ruler line by line and print out before you file something. Yeah. It's going to be right. And uh, it, was, it was a um, humbling, <laughs> humiliating, humbling experience. I, I actually, um, I, I do a ton of emails, ton of correspondence, ton of everything. And when I am emailing lawyers, I actually triple proof because I think, okay, is this conjugated right? Is this this? Because I know they're looking at my email. If there's like anything red underlined, I'm thinking, oh shit, they're not going to take me serious. You know, you guys, you guys are hardcore. But this really goes to something else. So there was another occasion really early on, my first year or two. It was, it was a restructuring law. We were selling a company for okay. $100 million to a private equity fund. And there was a number that I got the number wrong. But it was a very small number. You know, instead of the number was... A hundred million dollars and hundred million and seventy-five dollars. I said a hundred million and fifty-seven dollars. Just the last two. Woo-hoo. Nothing of consequence. Not, actually, nothing that would really matter. But again, we, we filed one of those erratas to correct it. And I remember number this two. partner. <laughs> yeah, number two. This partner told me that here's the thing: when you do this, and the judge sees that you're able to own your mistakes, and you can go into court and say. Your Honor, I just want to call your attention to one thing. We said the company is worth, you know, the financial advisors came in and they valued it at $100 million and $75. It's actually a mistake. It was $100 million and $57. It doesn't matter. But someone, they'll remember that. And what my boss said is the next time when the question is whether you got it right, but next time it is over like the $100 million place, not the one place, no one's going to question you because they're going to know that Lane Mervis is someone who is so careful and owns up that they'll own that mistake. The same thing happened when I started working for my present employer. I've been with them six, seven years. And early on, I got a paycheck and somehow it was wrong and they'd overpaid me by something like $200. And I went to my boss. It was my first or second paycheck. And I said, I think you entered something incorrectly, my hours. And I actually got overpaid. And he said, it's going to cost me more. It's going to be more difficult to rerun the check, (laughs) rerun the accounting. So don't worry about it. But you're really showing people who you are and where you come from. Mm You have to these days. Yeah, you have to. So you, ha- you have a quote. You said something about, um, you taught me the word puffing uh, the other day. Um, I now am clear. I know that now. But you said that the first rule of negotiation is you never make a threat that you can't back up. You like that one, huh? I really, I really, really, really do. Um, because it kind of... I feel like it, it can mean anything to anyone in any industry. And I don't, I don't really think of the word threat as something with a negative connotation. It's, it's more along the lines of, listen, here's the facts. Here's the situation. And if you, can't, if you can't back that up, then who are you? If you can't own up to a mistake and say, hey, I'm here standing in front of you right now to say, 
I want to correct it and I'm a human being again the same holistic approach is coming through all of like all of our years of work and I love it I love I love being able to walk into a room being a real person it's important so there's so first of all I loved our pre the, your process here as we were getting ready and the pre-interview mm-hmm, I remember that you reacted very strongly as we were sort of spitballing and throwing some ideas around of what we might chat about this word. So some of my cases involve fraud. I mean, the out, out and out fraud, con man, think movies of Robert De Niro, <laughs> and, uh, Al Pacino, things like that. And uh, there is an idea in the law of puffing. I, I feel like this word must be from 1910. But the idea is when you say, this is the world's best dog food. People understand that's just what you say on commercials. No one's going to sue and say, well, you said it was the world's best and it wasn't. And that's fraud, obviously. Right, right, so right. acceptable puffing. But what we're getting back to is credibility, right? Mm-hmm. So this quote that another one of my early mentors, who was really a world-class negotiator, taught me is you never make a threat you can't back up. And what that means is if you say in my line of work, unless you pay me X by Friday, we're suing. What happens if they don't pay X and Friday comes or on Monday morning and there's no lawsuit that's been filed? They know that you don't stand behind your word. So the next time you say, well, actually, I won't take less than this. They already know that you're, you, have no credi- you have no credibility. Yeah. And that's what you're talking about. Yeah. Absolutely. But there's another side to that. The other side is the puffing, which is that it doesn't mean we disclose everything. And, and puffing is allowed. And you were talking about how you have to do a lot of this posturing you taught it talked about leverage yeah that you have to get for your clients to represent them right yep 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 we you we we use that too um and again i did not know exactly what to call it before the other day but yeah i think i think both of us have the same goal is you know to be able to get the best for our clients the least the least amount for them to be out of pocket whether it's physical money or time space energy whatever it is and to be able to have ease doing it. It shouldn't be such a stressful process. That's why you have someone like you representing a client or someone like me. We take all that on. Um, so leverage, leverage is, is huge for us and it could be perceived as great or possibly puffing. <laughs> so I love when you bring this up because I often say, and this is an original, I, didn't, I, I love quoting others, but I think this is my original. You can be 100% truthful without telling 100% of the truth. Yes. You can be 100% truthful without telling. So let's go back to our, our, your single dating days. Uh, on, a fir- on a first date, you know, oh gosh, what do you like to do? I love hiking Runyon Canyon. Okay, the last time I hiked Runyon Canyon was maybe 1997. Right, right? right. I didn't. I didn't go last weekend. I didn't go the hundred weekends before that. You know what I love doing even more than that? Sitting at home and watching Netflix on the couch. But is it true? What do you really like doing? What's a first date? I love hiking Runyon Canyon with my friends and my dog. Yeah, it's true. I do love doing that. I don't do it, but I love doing it because you're trying to show your best. Now you don't lie. You don't say, "Oh, I'm a." I go rock climbing every weekend. You don't do that. But yeah. you can put your best foot forward. You know what I like that you brought up is holistic. And what does holistic mean? Holistic, integrative. What does that really mean? And you sort of, you touched on it. You really said it. It's characterized by seeing parts, as, dealing with things as parts of a whole. It's so important. 
And I loved what you said, which is that usually it's keeping more money in our client's pocket. Usually. And there's more aspects to it. And, and that's exactly what you said. You talked about ease. You talked about freeing up energy. It's not always just that. It's also wanting the best result for everyone involved. My duty is towards my client. I zealously advocate for my client. Mm-hmm. And I want the best situation, the best solution yeah. for everyone involved. Yeah. Yeah. We, um, we do a – so – Let's just say for us, um, one of our clients, since we're going with dog food, let's just say we have the same dog food client and they're growing. And, uh, you know, let's just be completely transparent. You know, they're growing. We had this big lease going on to extend. And now COVID happens. You need more dog food storefronts. You just need that. (laughs) COVID happens. Everything's up in the air. Everything changes. And now we're trying to get the best possible scenario for our client, um, and maybe the client doesn't want to move, but maybe we need to kind of lead the landlord down the path of, hey, we're looking at other spots, and if something else works, and you know you're not able to get it for, I don't know, a dollar a square foot, then we're out. Um, just like you said, that might not be 100% true. They might stay if the current landlord gives them the nice, you know, deal. But if there's other spaces out there that people are looking at and they get better deals, then we're not staying. So we do, we do kind of ride a fine line um, with that whole leverage, but it's a tool and we want to use it just like you in, in our clients' side, not, not necessarily on the landlords. Or. I really hear you. And that's the, that's the truth versus hundred percent of the truth, right? Cause your client may come to you, the tenant and say, the last thing I want to do is move spaces, hire moving consultants, get all the computers undone and the networks. And restart, and the expense is going to be, I've, I've been involved in these things. The expense is terrible. It's a long time. I would rather pull my hair off and do that. Yep. On the other hand, can you honestly say to the landlord that you, their present landlord, you're negotiating, look, my client is prepared. You know, if, if they don't get, if, if need be, they would have to move. Well, that goes, that goes again with, with the threat quote. You can't, you know, you can't, you can't go to the landlord saying, Hey, we're going to move if we're not prepared to. Right. We don't want to move, but we're prepared to move. So you have this little swinging pendulum. Yeah. Yep. So this, this comes up a lot in my cases, in my litigation, right? Because we all want to be, I'd love to be authentic and cut to the chase. And so where two people find themselves yeah. involved in a lawsuit, mm-hmm. sometimes you want to be able to go to the other side and say, look, are we really going to have my person spend X on legal fees, yours person spend X on legal fees? We're going to end up in the same place. Wouldn't we all like to and certainly how I make a living and you make a living, but to serve our clients, can't we just meet in the middle on day one rather than go- Can't we just all get along? I once heard someone say, uh, I think it was a former lawyer and now he was a hedge fund successful guy, but he said he couldn't stand being a lawyer because he just wanted to put the clients in a room and send pizzas under the door and lock it and not let them out until they got a deal done because it was so silly to to be involved in this. Yeah, right. It seems sensible to say to the other side, well, my client doesn't want to spend millions on legal fees. Your client, I'm sure, doesn't want to let's figure out a deal here. Now, most of the time, the parties on the other side don't say that. What they usually say is, yeah. my person, my client would love nothing more to go to, than going to court. He wants to bury you. That's all he wants. He's living for it. He's sharpening his knives. Yeah. 
um, but do you want to do a deal? Because <laughs> they come from a place, you have to come from a place of like aggression and strength. Yeah. So as much as I'd like to come from a place that I, I think we're, I kind of have a sense that they do agree with me. You know, yeah. why throw money out the window? Let's do a deal. Sometimes people can't do that. They have to posture. And that's okay. And that's part of our job is we're ready. Yeah. And maybe we, we can do that. But I do laugh at it when people, they have to come from that place of, my client wants to bury you. Now, some do. You have some clients who want their day in court. There is that. It's not all of them. But there are some who really want, want that. Do you typically represent those kind of clients or is it just on a case by case? I, mean, I really do find that clients find their match in lawyers. I, I agree. I, I, I think they make their match in whatever industry. There are tons of amazing brokers in my industry that I wouldn't want any of their clients. And I think the same, vice versa. I think, you know, uh, Rick and I, we do a ton of nonprofit work and represent, you know, them in their real estate. And some people don't even want to mess with that. Um, I think I think it takes more of a kindred soul um, and the patience and, you know, working through the grants and everything like that, as opposed to just, here's a deal, here's your square feet, here's this, okay, great, and on to the next. Is it a small community, big city like LA, is it small though? I mean, if someone comes to you and you're not a fit, would you say, we may not be a fit, but I actually know a good tenant side broker who, who would be perfect for you? Well, working with Cressa, we are nationwide. So I have like a thousand people that I could pull from, but we have, I don't know. I don't even know how many brokers we have in our office. I think we have like, I don't even know. I'm, I don't know if I'm being honest right now, but I think there's like 50 brokers in the wow. LA office. So, you know, we've, Rick's been doing commercial real estate for 30 years. He knows everyone. And we, we always have people. We always have more than one. There's a lot of times where, you know how people in your network come to you and say, I have a friend who needs this and it's not really in your wheelhouse, but you don't want to say no. What do you do? I usually give those to like the junior brokers that are yeah, right. trying to, you know, and if they have any questions, they can always go through me. And again, we have that liaison, which is back to the word holistic. Um, like sharing is caring. You know, it's, it's, it's not about, am I going to take this client because, oh my gosh, someone's stealing it from me. No, it's, that's just share because there's going to be times where maybe they need a little bit of help too. You know? So I know that you love doing what you do, but I want, I want everyone else to know why you love doing what you do. Um, we want to represent our clients in the most truthful, authentic way, which we've already discussed. And we want to do it with ease, but how do we really fall in love with what we do? You said you've, you've gone from, correct me if I'm wrong, like a few years at each job until you really found, Hey, this is the one you've been with the same firm for seven years now. And there's seven been years at our, at our practice. Yeah. And all litigation. Mm -hmm. I'm by nature a consensus builder. So it's not, Okay. Really where I originally thought I would end up. Yeah. It can be very contentious. Uh, I used to cry before I went into court. I mean, actually Why? cry. Why? Because you were nervous or, or like excited or what? A mixture of both. Okay. And terrified. And I would do it because we have to regularly go into court. Yeah. And I would stay up all night. And that's actually oh. why I landed up, we were talking about this too, I landed up joining Toastmasters because I just couldn't take it anymore. I mean, eventually I said, I've got to... Uh, I've got to do something with this fear. I would, I would be terrified the night before court. 
And then as soon as I walked out, I would have the biggest smile on my face, which is the same thing that happened. Yes. When I went to Toastmasters, I was biting my nails off, terrified. How am I going to stand up? Toastmasters is the international speaking organization. How am I going to stand up in front of people and give a speech? So uncomfortable. Most of us only do it at our weddings, you know, a couple of occasions. And uh, I tried to join a couple of times and was afraid I didn't do anything. I signed up and didn't. And then I did. Again, after I gave, I was terrified. And as soon as I gave it, I had such a smile on my face. I couldn't wait to get on the sign up, you you know, you're on the sign up list so you can give a speech. Maybe not every week, but every few weeks because there's a big group of you. Couldn't wait to get back on. Within three months of joining, I was president of my local chapter. Oh, look at you. I've never looked back. I still get some nerves before court, definitely. I mean, I think there were great comedians and Robin Williams and people who they would throw up before every time going on set, you know, these stories yeah. of famous comedians who would do this, even though they were people we think are fantastic. Yeah. Um, and it's thrilling and it's exciting. I usually sleep the night through now before. Yeah. Uh, or this morning. I, you, know, you asked what I love about doing this and I am a helper. I love helping my clients and this also goes back to what I studied in, in spiritual psychology and what you're going to connect with, I think. Because uh, what I learned about in the master's and program in spiritual psychology was that we all have what's called a, a curriculum, a spiritual curriculum. Yeah, absolutely. Don't, I won't get too far into energy or crystals, don't worry. Um, and what a curriculum, a spiritual curriculum is, is the Western word for karma. A lot of people think karma means if someone cuts me off in traffic, um, they're going to get it later on. And that's not what karma means. Karma is the, or curriculum is this collection of life lessons we all have to learn. Just the stuff that we come in with. People have issues. Um, Those issues are sort of manifested. I'm always, where I lean to is if I can separate people from the drama, let's just call it that, or the Yiddish, the Mishigas. If I can just separate Mishigas, people. Mishigas, yes. I feel like that, that's where my inclination is. But people don't always want that. Yeah, what, what if you go through all these steps, which I think are all great, definitely support everything, and they still are just, it's just not really working. Like, it's like two opposing magnets, you know? You're like telling them this, telling them this, no, I want this, I want that. What, like, what do you do? Is that, is that when you kind of pass them off to maybe someone else in your firm or a buddy or someone maybe you don't like considering you couldn't like break them down? Most of my clients I get along great with. Thank God I have not had too much of that issue. I mean, I've heard some horror stories. What do you guys do? I mean, have you had clients where it's just not, it's like, gosh, I want to do my best for you and this is not working out? I remember actually, um, I'm going to leave all names out. Uh, of course. I somehow got this name of an attorney and someone somehow told me something. They needed a lot of space. Something's going on. So of course I did all I could do to connect and LinkedIn and this and comment and blah, blah, blah. And, and I walk into her office. Um, I don't know how many times, at least a handful. And finally she's there and the door is open. I'm in the front lobby and this was, I don't know, this is like two or three years ago. And I don't believe she knew that I was in the lobby. So when the receptionist called her to say, Lindy Pearson from Cressa is here, she starts screaming. And she's like, 
she's been here already. I have her card. I don't need her. I could do everything on my own. And I'm like, <laughs> and the receptionist is okay. Yeah. Thank you. You know, da, 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 whatever. And the receptionist decides to interpret what she says, knowing darn well, we all, the, the entire office. Word, every word. Yeah. And, um, and I remember just kind of leaving the office and walking down this long hallway. And she actually was on like a top high rise floor. Um, and I was just, I didn't even have any thoughts. I just was like, you know what? Thank goodness. I didn't get her as a client. Thank goodness. And then the story's not over. Then like a year later, she somehow met Rick. Asks Rick to help her. Obviously not knowing that we're together or like anything. Um, and Rick comes home one night and says, isn't this the lady that blah, 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 blah. And I said, yes, no, we are not working with her at all. Um, and obviously we, you know, gave the referral to someone else, letting them know what kind of environment or condition this was coming in. And um, that was the end of it. But it's hard because you, you don't want to turn people away. You do want to help them. But there are times where you just can't move forward. You just got to, you got to let it go. Well, people are always showing us who they are. This is one of my, another one of my favorite quotes from Don Draper. Remember the show Mad Men? And what happens is people are always showing us who they are, but we don't always see it because we want them to be who we want them to be. It goes on. Yeah, that's a good um, and that's when I really see, usually you're asking about clients and my clients I really love and care about. Usually it's some lawyers on the other side. And this goes back to what we started with credibility. You know, someone says, oh, I need an extra week to get this to you. Can you give me an extension? You know, one of these litigation deadlines. Of course. Yeah, of course. Standard. Can you give me another week? Of course. Can you give me another week? Still. But eventually, there's a credibility issue. And then they're showing you that they're – and so then when they come to you and it's time to try and settle, the, you know, can you just do this and this because I want to settle the case? Can you spend a few hours and draft up the documents because right. I think we have a settlement? Well, right. When you say you're going to do something, you don't come through. And so now yeah. there's a impediment, and it's, do, it's doing a disservice to your own client. Yeah. I don't, I can't trust it's a waste you. of time for both parties, no matter what. Yeah, absolutely. So, you, so we obviously we have good days and bad days with work. We have amazing clients that are just just trust us and trust the process. Um, what about when when we do have these long days at court, in the office, projects, whatever they are, the trials and tribulations of getting everything done? How how do you get your support? Maybe your mentors or your inspiration or something like that. You know, this is where I've really evolved over time, and I owe a lot of this to uh, the study I did in psychology. But having a growth mindset, I think, is the difference. You know, I, some of us may really um, knock ourselves when we have a tough day or when something doesn't go right. Uh, I mean, ultimately, oh we're ultimately we can only do the best we can. Mm -hmm. And you can honestly say to yourself, "I prepared for this," and, and believe me, the, you know, the litigation, the cases I work on, they are. They're really complex. And, you know, I'm looking through tax documents and financial documents and even a simple case. You wouldn't believe it. You know, you think yeah. someone broke a contract and they owe someone a, you know, owe someone some money. I, I shipped the goods. No, well, the goods were no good that you sent me. And so I'm not going to pay you. You know, that's about as simple a case as you can get. 
But even those, a couple of con- you know, contract, a couple of documents, a couple of emails, a few phone calls. Absolutely. So comp- You'd really be surprised. I am actually, you know, 20 years into this, 18 years into this, how quickly it gets really complicated and it can be, it can be pretty exhausting. But ultimately, I think we can only do what we can do. And, and again, you know, earlier on in my career, I was really tough on myself and would kick myself. Uh, and now I know when I can honestly say, you know, I've, I've prepared and I've done this. Yeah. You know, they're good days and bad. I mean, and yeah. also we're, you're only responsible ultimately for what you put out there. The, I do the best work product I can. Yeah. And there is no controlling the judge. You know, that's a third party. He's got his black robes on, he or she. And yeah. ultimately you can't control that. That's a tough one for me. You've mentioned, you've mentioned in the past in regards to work ethic, something about your dad and how hard he worked and how you, you watched him do that. How, how did that affect you? Yeah. I, in our pre-workup, we were talking about, you know, my, my dad, I remember I grew up in San Diego and my dad had a business in LA and he used to drive to the train station and he had a car. He just took back and forth to the train station, yep. took the train up two hours each way, twice a day. So we get up pretty early at 4.30 a.m., yeah. And uh, I remember really young when he came home, some days he would take the early train home. And so I wasn't, you know, going to bed yet or whatever. And I don't make me when he came home. I would go and grab his brief. I was that kid. I had a briefcase. Did you, have, did you ever have your dad's old briefcase? Would you keep papers in them? That only mm-hmm. I used to write short stories and I would keep all my things in his, in his no, old briefcase. I was, I was always with my mom, not my dad, but I get well, it. I see. Um, I, you know, I was with my, uh, my mom all day. So when my dad came home from this, you know, four hours of travel each day, I was always really excited. Um, and I, I remember once in a while I would take the train up and go with my dad. Now he had a factory that he and a few partners owned. This is really going to date. This is great. And what they made was sheepskin car seat covers. Do you remember these? Yeah, totally. Very fashionable because your leather seat. And, the, and the, what's it called? The steering wheel. That's right. That's right. Oh, and the, and the, what's that called? Stick shift? I don't know. Automatic, whatever. That sounds right. Gear shift. And they had this warehouse and the pallets went up like 30 feet, you can imagine. And then sheepskin seat covers, like a rug, would sit flat, 20 of them high. But then, so I used to, I was young. I used to, seven years old. I used to climb up like 20 feet in the air. And I didn't do any work, but I would get paid like 50 cents an hour. I had to negotiate with his partner because there was otherwise a, conflict of interest if I was negotiating. Of course. So he used course. to send me into his partner. Oh, negotiating was, uh, at an early stage. That, that's right. That's right. Uh, but I really saw, and my dad actually after that worked in some other businesses, and my dad always used to pick up a broom and a mop and clean at the end of the day. The, it was a warehouse. You know, he had his office on one side and they had manufacturing. And he would pick up a, a broom and start cleaning. Now, there's a few things to that. Number one, my dad is just really... OCD and loves cleaning. There's nothing more he enjoys than that. Uh, but number two is that as an executive or a part owner in the yeah. business, he, he would pick up a broom and clean right next to everyone else at 20 employees working there or something. It was a real small business. Yeah. But I just always admired that, that there was never any, there was never any idea that there was any difference from a person who was working the shop floor versus. Yeah, no. That's another thing we have in common, uh, family business as well. Uh, my grandparents paid a tremendous, tremendous role in my life. 
Um, and my grandfather invented a line of drinks and had a couple companies. And even still today, just to make him, just to idolize him even more. Um, although he was a very tough man to uh, impress, um, he's 90, I almost said 94, 93, 94. Oops, sorry, Papa. <laughs> and Did you age him? Did you age Papa a year? I don't know, maybe. But he still goes to work. It's COVID. Oh. He's in his 90s. We have had some COVID scares at the company. Um, he's had to let, let people go, furlough people, part-time people, hybrid, like everything all the above. But it's been him. He's still showing up. He's still driving. He's still doing. And that is just like, that's amazing. I mean, he still drives to my house for dinner. I'm like, Papa, I will, I will come to your house. But he's, he's just, yeah, he's in, Papa, please don't. He's in that mind frame. And and I've seen him work very hard, very, very hard. And, and that's, that's huge. Especially I just, I love to see people. And I don't know where this came from because, you know, we're Gen Xers and I, I loved watching um, Ethan Hawke in Reality Bites. And you have to remember oh, that, that, that the hero in that movie, who Winona Ryder goes for, is not, um, is not the, the yuppie, right? Ben Stiller. She goes for the slacker, right? Who wants to who who gets fired from all his jobs? Yep. And uh, has a little bit of facial, you know, yeah, some little, scruff. Facial hair. little scruff. Yeah, Ethan Hawke had some scruff in that, and he had a series of uh, minimum wage jobs, and that was sort of you know, and, and no one wanted to sell out and work for the man. But today, we really, our heroes are all these, you know, the Facebooks and the I don't know about that, but the people who are startups, people who are, who, who are growing businesses. And I don't know where this came from. It's interesting development. You know, I mean, I think we'll look back maybe in 10, 20, maybe more years in context and see yeah. what this meant. But in the meantime, you know, we really do celebrate this. It is great, a great accomplishment um, wherever we look back on this from. And um, I just love supporting people in moving their projects forward. That's what I like doing. Most of my cases, most, most of the things I work on, although there are some deals, transactions, most are usually litigation. They're, they're in court or they're in arbitration, which you know, is private court. It's court, but in an office building uh, where you split the cost and pay for your own judge. Right. And so usually by that time, things have gone pretty bad. It's not really a, an exciting project. It's, it's usually a project that's blown up. <laughs> um, but uh, I really- A couple left turns. Yeah, but it is exciting seeing people creates you talking about your grandpa you're talking about your yeah. guys brokerage business mm -hmm. very inspiring so you have okay so we have we have early seven-year-old negotiations in the pallet sheepskin arena we have going to school to be a lawyer not knowing exactly where and what and how you're going to practice three years here well, three years there I'll, I'll give you an example of the types of issues may i the yeah, please. That I think come up for people. So you ever negotiate? Do you like negotiating when you go to buy or lease a new car? Or is that the worst thing ever? Um, hmm. I actually have this guy. His name is Adam. Oh, you have someone you go to? And he does everything for me. It's literally just delivered to my doorstep. So no, I don't. I don't like that. So I remember going in to get a new car and I had a number in mind. And I decided to write it down on a note. This is a few cars ago. 
And I said, this is what I want to pay. It was a lease. This is what I want to put down. And this is what I want a month. And I don't want to go past that. So I wanted to remind myself because I knew that car salesmen would twist you up in pretzels. You don't know where you are. You think you've got a great deal and you're signing. That was my impression, having gone through the process already a little. So I wrote it down. I put it in my pocket. Anyway, I get through to the near the end of, end of the process where you've done a deal and then you have to go into the other room to actually sign all the paperwork and talk to the other guy. But we shook hands. I've got the deal. This is what I'm going to pay. And as I did it, I just had this feeling like, oh my God, I said I wasn't going to pay more than X. And mm. here I've just agreed to pay more. And I'm really, disappointed. I'm really disappointed in myself. A lot of judgment. It's no <laughs> fun to feel that way. No. And then I remembered, oh, when I walked in here two hours ago, I had a, that piece of paper. I wrote it down and I took it out. It's a true story. I was paying exactly what I had written. Was oh, you didn't remember. To, a penny. I had written it down and it was exactly the deal I had done. But because of my feelings that you know, a car salesman would sort of twist you around and run you in circles, mm-hmm. I was sure that I had been taken advantage of. Oh my God, I've, I've gone over my number. You go up and down and oh, the monthly yeah. goes up and yeah, what about this? What about that? My point is that it's not just how successful we are. It's how you feel about your success. I mean, obviously all of us know this, right? Because there are millionaires yes. and billionaires who are absolutely unhappy. So you can get the deal of a lifetime on your car. But if, if you weren't like me and you forgot to write it down, what you said you would go, yeah. <laughs> what, you, what you wanted to do when you went in, you can land up getting a great deal. But you walk out of there thinking, oh man, I really screwed up. <laughs> really screwed up. And then you feel bad about it. So what good is it that, you're, that you got the deal you wanted? Because you feel awful. Right. Yeah. So that's the type, that's what I talk about. Now, why did I have that? Well, obviously, I, I guess I had some issue that, oh gosh, you don't want to, gosh, Lane, you don't want to let them take advantage of you. You know, these salesmen will run you around in circles. Yeah. That's the type of issues that people had. That's what I think about in negotiations. Um, you know, people have issues with, my clients they have issues with authority. People have these things. The government's after me. Well, these are like, leftover issues from childhood around authority. I mean, I'm, I'm not going right. to be anyone's um, armchair psychiatrist, but it, it's true. Yeah. So yeah. I think that's where I started getting interested. And I decided I wanted to study more about negotiation. I, I took some, I, I listened in on some lectures on negotiation theory. I'd, I'd always appreciated my bosses who were good on that. And I really wanted to practice and so I started getting into buying and selling mid-century modern furniture about 10, 15 years ago. Okay. Because I figured if I'm going to practice. That actually suits your personality. I could totally see you doing this and like staging a home in Palm Springs or something. Yeah. I mean, that was the idea. Sometimes I used to have to go to Palm. Oh, they usually don't have the deals there because they love that stuff there. Um, and this was a good 10, 15 years ago. So the mid-century thing was still kind of on the, on the rise. Up and up. And, um, my wife and I had a pretty good side business going on. And I was driving all around the valley, usually had the good deals. I would go to garage sales, flea markets, estate oh, cool. sales, and Craigslist. And you really have to deal with what comes up, right? Because imagine you go in and someone says, well, I want $100 for this surfboard 1950s coffee table. And then I say, I'd like to do a deal that everyone feels good about walking away from. Mm-hmm what I'd like to do is pay $15 for this. Can can you do that? (laughs) What comes up for you when you say something like that? Oh, well, you know, emotional ties to the piece, maybe a family member made it or an ex-girlfriend, boyfriend. Maybe I'm going to embarrass myself. Maybe they're going to yell at me. 
to get out of here. Yeah. What do you think? I'm asking 100, not 15. And then imagine when, then when it's, you know, a million dollars and $150,000, right? So I, I, I thought it was fun to practice. And I started doing that all the time and trying out different, you know, all sorts of different theories and different methods for opening moves and how people respond. You know, try not to give people yes and no's options because it's too easy to say no. Will you take? Yeah. It's very easy to say no. Will you take this much? Because it only calls for one of two answers. And so there's a 50% chance that it's That's easy. That's a great way to work on your skills. I like that. Um, if you ask someone, how do you feel about paying X dollars? Um, some people aren't going to be comfortable with that because they don't like the word feel. But half the population, a lot of men will not be comfortable yeah. talking about feelings. So they won't even know how to answer. How do you feel about taking $100? What do you mean? Yeah. Um, I, I would try, like, I, like the example I gave, making a statement instead of a question. I'd, right. I'd like to do a deal at this amount. Right. And then I just like see that silence and see what sort of discomfort comes. What, what, what have you done in regards to this last year? Those are all things that, that are all great, fine and dandy when you're in person and can be in 3D instead of us constantly in this last year in 2D. What are some of the personal developments that you've done or seen, um, whether by you, others in your firm, or something that just kind of gives you the good feeling. Um, I could, I could say something want, in regard. Give me some examples, or you want to give me a prompt? Is there one? Well, thinking? like the prompt is something that I love seeing that you do. Is you have actually figured out how to do something in other jurisdictions. Yeah, so you're talking about my move, my uh -huh. recent move. So I've been very interested, and I'm always reading stories about this whole um, sort of pa pandemic movement between cities, states, right? And there's all these articles timed by U-Haul data. I love those guys. I love anything data-driven, where the one-way U-Haul trips are, and um, people moving from California to Austin, Texas, and to Idaho. And Idaho, yeah. Too many Californians in Idaho apparently is a big problem. So I'm really fascinated by this, and this is why. I mean, you think about, and this, this impact, this is really right in your field, right? Because people yeah. for a long time, there's an article I was reading the other day in the journal, people have been tethered based on where they work, mm -hmm. right? I and mean, we talk about policy in this country, you know, healthcare yeah. is tethered to where you work and whether we want that or not. And one thing the case is that people, gen generally speaking, you have to live where you work. And is that a good thing? Do you, do you want that to be the case? We sort of haven't questioned it. And now with the pandemic, it's been this like uh, road test, this quality control test for Zoom and remote working. And why not have people be able to live in a community they really want to be in? And, and I guess you were talking the other day about people, you know, working remotely and then coming in like a couple of days a week maybe. So then it's not so bad to work. Yeah. Yeah, part-time, right? So then you can it's not so difficult to live a couple hours away in a community that you really want to be in. You can get the fresh air. So we decided to move and we gave up our home in LA, which I loved. I was in Highland park on the east side of LA and I used to take the gold line downtown. Every the day. hipster lawyer. Yeah. You know, hips, hipster lawyer.com <laughs> uh, at, at hipster lawyer um, on, on, Insta on Instagram. Uh, but a couple of months ago, we were part of this wave, right? It got into moving out and buying property. And so I bought a house here in Lake Arrowhead, which is just gorgeous. 
did some due diligence. I wasn't, honestly, I, I didn't know exactly what I was going to get into. It's worked out fantastically. I just love it. We have double. You're making, you're making lots of changes to everything though, too. You had Joshua tree. Now you have like Arrowhead, you're painting wood panels. So this past year, I did, I invested, I bought a place in Joshua Tree. I'd always wanted a place in the desert. And the idea was to spend time out there. It's got great internet service. There's no TV, but it's got great internet service. We didn't want a TV there. And spend weekends or a week or two there when we want to, rent it out when we don't. Perfect. And have a, you know, have a place that I could bring family to, have, have friends stay for a, a night or two and really get away. It's on acres. It's got 30 Joshua Trees on the property. And it's a great house. So I did that. And then this opportunity came up a couple of months ago. And I decided to go for this one as, a, as another home. And what my wife and I are doing are spending the pandemic here. We're fixing up the property. There's work people here every single day you know, downstairs doing some work on. on I love this. I love it. And we've done a lot of the work ourselves on the kitchen and the, and the bedrooms. And um, it, it's just a beautiful lake house. It's about five minutes from the lake. And I, I just think it's exciting and I love adding value. I, I can't wait to see what it looks like. And I, th- I think, I think us as, as Gen Xers, I think, um, correct me if I'm wrong, according to you, but I think we've, we've in the workforce, we've always wanted and craved flexibility and doing things the way we want to do it, whatever holistically we want to, like whatever you want flexibility was like number one for me. And really I didn't find that this whole COVID thing kind of made everything flexible, made everyone from this working from home experiment, hybrid experiment, bringing technology into your home, cybersecurity, online schooling. I'm not even going to get into that. Um, Just like trying to be productive. And then we have the millennials and all these other different people coming in. I don't see us going back to, these nine to five jobs um, when we can do it so much better. Yeah, I hope not. I mean, you hear terms like when companies will call their workers back to work. It sounds very authoritarian. Yeah. Um, I like this. I guess, you know, this really impacts your, you're really the expert on this. And I sort of wonder what you're, what you guys are predicting, you know, one, two, three, four quarters ahead. You know, I, I take, I take uh, surveys. I take uh informal surveys to everyone I, I talk to and I want to know like when do you guys feel comfortable when you know, when is it and everyone's answer has to go back to the vaccine it's like when I can have the vaccine and I know I'm not gonna you know x y and z then I'll go back into the office but a lot of people are pretty much fourth quarter if that you know fourth quarter 2021 so here's one positive positive impact of this and it's what you already more than alluded to what you already expressed. Anything that shows increased flexibility, openness, I think is good. And now on, I'll regularly be on meetings where you'll see someone's kid run behind them. Right? <laughs> yeah, hold on a second, put the kid on the lap. During a business meeting, not some or sort of- Or the dog barks or, or something. Yeah, not some sort of fronting where you have to pretend that you yeah. know, antiquated idea, especially sometimes men on calls and they have to pretend that they- family isn't a part of their life or it's separated. Now you'll see people on a very important business call. They're, you know, really coming down tough. And then, hold on a second. Let me just rock my kid on my, on my knee here. Yeah. Or like, look at my new puppy. Isn't it cute? Uh, And I I think that's positive because, you know, why front unnecessarily? 
Um, I'll tell you the difference I think pre-COVID and now is before when a dog barked while I was on a conference call and someone said, whose dog was that? I would just not say anything and hope to with someone else, <laughs> you know, hope, hope no one knew it was me. Now when the dog barks, you get to say, oh, sorry guys, it's my dog. It's my dog in the background. Yeah, it's, I'm not, I'm not great. Why, why do you have to pretend? Oh gosh, I hope no one knows I have a dog that barks. No, I think, I think, about. I think before COVID, I definitely did have some judgment. Like, can't you find a space that's quiet? Um, and yes, I am. I'm guilty of that sometimes, but at the same token, it's like, this is life. Do you want, do you want to do business? Do you want, do you want to be real? Do you want to be functional? Do you want to, you know, matter? Do you want to differentiate yourself from the others? You know, do you want to attract the right people kind of thing? I think, I think that's what's, what's big. And especially with everyone being closed and not being able to do things, we live in an entrepreneurial world. It's really hard for us just to sit twiddling our thumbs in limbo. It's not something that we're used to. Um, so like, I'm excited. I love taking out the RV and spending five days in the RV. Maybe it's a weekend and a Friday and a Monday. We just went to Leo Carrillo. I had several meetings, um, on zoom. I could do all of them. I had phone calls that I was able to take and I planned, you know, this whole podcast with you. Um, you in, in some ways the pandemic, uh, as tragic as it is and as much difficulty as people have gone through. And I really feel, and also I have some friends who uh, are alone during the pandemic, do not have family. Mm, that's so tough. You know, you, you think about that and, and they express to me how, mm. how tough it is that they can't go yeah. anymore to, you know, cause, cause for them it was really important to get out and, and play golf or get on the tennis court or whatever they were doing, you know, just several social, times a week. Just anything. Social. Yeah. Um, but in some ways it was almost like a, a sort of seize the day moment because we realized that the experts don't know anything. Anything could happen. Um, it's an unpredictable world. And so a lot of, the, a lot of us who, well, you know, we have inspiring quotes sometimes that say that, you know, carpe diem. But yeah. that really got into my, it really got under my skin in a good way. Yeah. And that's what happened here. When you were asking me about moving to start of the pandemic, I looked around and I thought, why am I going to delay this? I'm, I'm going to buy a home and make it beautiful and fix it up. And it'll be a project day and night and, and day and night and day and night. And, uh, a little you know, more than you drywall than dust in the, yeah there's and there's drywall dust around you know yeah I but hear you. um i just when well, i'm gonna put this off for six months or 12 months this is what i want to do i we love doing this i want to right buy and flip up and, and and improve homes and so let's do it now and interest rates are two percent and and yeah. it's a wonderful Makes opportunity sense. so it was a it was a little bit of a, a seat for me that was really that was really on the edge of what i could imagine you know I love it. Real estate and doing something very, what I feel is very entrepreneurial. Why put that off? Let's, I'll do that now. I love it. I love it. Well, thank you for being on my podcast, Mr. Laney Poo. Um, we can thank talk you so much. Yeah, we can talk for hours and hours. And I think I will definitely have you on again. Just don't know when, but as we get to our new normal, next normal, whatever the heck you want to call it. Um, I think there's going to be lots of cool, fun projects that are emerging and I can't wait to keep up with you and we will see. I, I hope it is a new normal and a next normal because the old normal had some great parts. It wasn't so perfect that it can't be improved. And so yeah. I'm excited about whatever's next. Yeah, we're evolving. <laughs> thank you very much, Lindy. Yes, thank you. Thank you.